church this morning, as we continue in our series Revealing Jesus, we move into a very significant and pivotal part of the book of Revelation. We move into chapter 5 where we start to see the unveiling of the seven seals found on the scroll that is in the right hand of God. This scroll contains instructions on how the tribulation period must unfold, all in preparation for the end of the age and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 is pivotal in that it unveils the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been singing, as the Lamb who was slain, but also as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And very significantly, yes, amen, it asks the question, a question we will aim to answer today. The question of who is worthy to open up the scroll and break its seals. If you're a fan of eschatology, where we're going from this point onwards is really going to excite you as we delve into some of the most amazing mysteries of the Word of God that clearly define the end times. But before I get ahead of myself, let's read the first seven verses of chapter 5 together, and then we will get into the heart of the message today. This is what uh, Reynard just read, but let's read it again for the sake of this message. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Church, quick question for you. What is the scroll that God is holding in his right hand, which Jesus then takes? It is the title deed to the earth. Now that sounds quite fancy, right? But what does that actually mean and why is that important for you and I to understand? Church, I'm going to spend some time explaining this as a foundation for the significance of the scroll with the seven seals, and I'm going to piece a number of things together which might not make a lot of sense initially, but you'll see the importance thereof when we get there. Is that okay? So let's start right at the beginning. When God created Adam, what did he give him? He gave him dominion over the earth, that's right. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That word dominion in that verse is the Hebrew word Radar, and it means to manage or govern something with considerable authority. It means authority to rule. 
What that verse then means is that Adam and his descendants were given authority by God to rule over all the earth. And in a sense, what God did was he gave to Adam the title deed to the earth. He gave Adam the right to rule over it, and that's what dominion means. But church, when Adam sinned, what happened? He forfeited his God-given right to have dominion. He literally sold himself into the bondage of sin, and not just himself, all of his descendants, and he also subjected the earth to the corruption of sin. So, as a result of that first sin, man no longer has dominion over himself, and man no longer has dominion over the earth. Now, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, Pastor, I can control myself. I can have, I mean, I have dominion over myself. You may say that, but in reality, you don't have complete dominion over yourself. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. Look with me at Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, if you want to go there in your Bibles. It's a sizable portion of Scripture to read, but we need to get the understanding and get the sense of what it's like to be in these sinful bodies. Notice what it says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Question for you, who is sold under sin? That's every single one of us. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In other words, I want to do good, I wish to do good, I want to do God's will, but I don't always do it. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What he's saying is that it is sin that seems to rule over me and seems to push me. And in verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in other words, my spirit man, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now that's a really important question. Because Paul understands that he wants to do God's will, right? He has the mind to do it, but there's something inside of his flesh that keeps him from doing God's will. That keeps him from being everything that God wants him to be. Right? He wants to know who's going to set him free from this body of death. And in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Which means that Jesus Christ is the only answer. Amen? He concludes by saying, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, church, let me put it to you this way. Because of what Adam did, 
sin is like a drug. Because of what Adam did and because of the Adamic nature we've all inherited, sin could be compared to a drug. I don't do what I want to do, and I don't want to do those bad things, but I can't help it. It causes me to do things that I, want to, that I don't want to do. And listen, if you've ever spoken to someone who's a drug addict, they don't want to do those things. They don't want to break into people's homes and steal. They don't want to live the way they do and destroy their lives and even destroy their families' lives. But there's something inside of them that causes them to do what they don't want to do, what they actually hate doing. And you know, church, we might not be overcome by sin to that point, but there's something inside of each of us that causes us to do certain things at certain times that we don't necessarily want to do. Is there an amen or, or, or an A-not to that maybe, you know? I don't know. As an example, you know, we wake up in the morning and we tell ourselves, I'm not going to say anything bad about anyone today. I'm going to be positive, right? I'm not going to get upset when someone cuts me off in the traffic or when a taxi driver doesn't obey the rules of the road. I'm not going to have a negative attitude because God wants me to develop certain virtues in my life that can affect people in a positive way. We even say things like, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and I'm going to go with that strength and that joy into this day. And you go off to work, and it seems like everything goes wrong, and before you know it, you've blown it. You shouted at the taxi driver that was driving 15 kilometers an hour in an 80 zone. You blew your hooter 20 times before you got to work because of different incidents, and you even insulted the security guard who took so long at signing you in because you were running late due to load shedding. You tried, but what you didn't want to do, you did, and what you wanted to do, you didn't. Why? Because you have this inherent sin nature. And the only one that can set us free from the sin that's in our members is Jesus. And that's what verse 25 means. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 8, it goes on to tell us how there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It strengthens that in, in verses 3 and 4, where it says, For God, listen to this church, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do that? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what's the answer? The answer to sin in this life is to walk in the Spirit. And Paul says in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, which means that's a given, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So church, what that means is that as long as I'm in the sinful body, I'm going to have to struggle, I'm going to have the struggle within my flesh. Yes, I now have the Holy Spirit within me, which gives me the power to overcome these fleshly desires and to live a godly life, which means we do not have a license to sin, right? But even though I've been redeemed spiritually, I'm still waiting to be redeemed physically, and until I'm redeemed physically, there's always going to be this internal struggle. 
So what I want is to be redeemed from this corrupted body and receive my glorified body. Which brings me to my next point. Man lost three things when Adam sinned. Number one, he lost his spiritual life, which means he became spiritually dead. Number two, he lost his physical life, which means he became mortal. And number three, he lost his dominion over the earth, which resulted in the earth being subjected to the corruption of sin. Look at what Romans chapter 8, verse 20 to 21 says. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, church, Adam was designed to live forever in fellowship with God. And creation was designed to operate in a manner in which nothing was harmed or destroyed. Do you know what that means? That means that animals didn't prey on each other. The lion ate hay just like the ox. The bear did also. Which means that they could graze together and lie down together. You didn't have things like volcanic eruptions. You didn't have things like earthquakes or tornadoes. It was a perfect world but that all changed. Because of what Adam did, all of creation was subjected to God's curse, and now no part of creation entirely fulfills God's original purpose. And what does that mean? That means that animals don't lie down together anymore. Rather, they hunt down, attack, and eat each other. They'll even eat us if we give them a chance, right? That means also we have things like the second law of thermodynamics, where things left to themselves go from order to disorder. We see this law of entropy taking its toll over everything where our clothes wear out, things tear up, and are eventually of no use. You get this brand new home and you kit it with all these new appliances, you paint the house with all these beautiful colors. But what eventually happens? Several years later, all the appliances start degrading and the paint starts to peel off the walls of your house. Because church, whether we like it or not, everything in creation is in the process of degradation. Right? I mean, this is a bit of a sad fact, but just think about your own bodies for a moment. We've been right along, right? <laughs> you know, I'm approaching the age of 50 at the end of this year. And I don't know who else is close to that age, but my body doesn't operate the way that it used to. Right, when I was younger, I could throw on a pair of tackies and I could run for as long as I wanted to, but now I first have to stretch, run for a kilometer, stretch some more, and then hopefully I'll be able to run five to 10 kilometers without any niggles or pains. You know what, I don't like that reality, but that's just the way it works. That's what it means to be under the curse. And all of creation wants to be set free from this. Anybody want to be set free from their, their bodies? <laughs> Young people are saying, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> now, church, for there to be complete redemption, all that has been lost to sin has to be restored. That would make sense, right? 
Redemption isn't complete until all that was lost by sin is restored, which means that three things have to happen. Remember, there were three things that were lost because of Adam's sin, and therefore three things have to happen for full redemption to take place. So if you take your notes, write this down. Number one, our spirit has to be redeemed. Our spirit has to be redeemed, which happens when what? When we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. When we're converted, when we ask Jesus Christ to come into our heart, when we believe that God raised him from the dead and we confess him as Lord, and when we are willing to enthrone him as Lord over our lives, our spirit is immediately redeemed and we are born again. Number two, the second thing that has to happen is our bodies have to be redeemed. And church, when is that going to happen? When the rapture happens, right? When the rapture occurs, we are going to receive our glorified bodies. We spoke about that in, in, in some detail a couple of weeks back. This body that's standing right here is going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and I'm not going to have the struggle anymore. That sin that is holding me in this body, that's causing this internal struggle. And this body that is getting older and older by the minute, it's not going to be there anymore. Because I'm going to have a glorified body, and guess what? I won't care about the second law of thermodynamics. There's a bit of a tongue twister there. Number three, the third thing that has to happen for complete redemption to take place is that the earth has to be redeemed. And when's that going to happen, church? That's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period known as the second coming. The earth will be redeemed and will then revert back to the way that it was before the fall. So in Revelation chapter 5, where God is holding the scroll in his right hand, what is the only thing left to be redeemed at that point? The earth, right? At this point in the book of Revelation, the saints have already received Christ, which means that their spirits have been redeemed. They have already been raptured, which means that their bodies have been redeemed. The only thing left to be redeemed is the earth, which then means, and this is why Revelation chapter 5 is so important and so significant. It means that it's time for Jesus to step forward and exercise his right as the kinsman redeemer and open the scroll with the seven seals. Which then leads us all the way back to the question I asked you at the beginning of this message. Who is worthy to open up the scroll and break its seals? What's his name? Jesus. Now, we know the answer to that question. But maybe I should ask you a different question. Why is Jesus worthy? Why is he worthy? All of those things are correct. But go with me to quickly to Leviticus chapter 25 and put your finger next to verse 47. In the Old Testament law, the law made provision for those sold into slavery to be set free through a process called redemption. We're talking about the law here, and why that is important to note is because if God is going to do something, he has to do it legally. So the Lord made provision for redemption, and in Leviticus chapter 25, 
verses 47 to 49, it says this. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So interestingly, only a relative could redeem a person from bondage, and in order to do so, he had to pay the price of redemption, which was equivalent to the debt that the person owed in relation to the year of Jubilee. The most common reason that a person would sell himself into slavery is because he accumulated a debt that he couldn't pay. So in order to pay off that debt, what he would do is he would sell himself into slavery. And the only way that he could be redeemed is if a relative paid the price of redemption and only after the debt was paid in full was that person set free. The same principle applied to property where if someone became poor and sold part of his property off, then his nearest redeemer, if he was able to pay the full price, would come and redeem what he sold. Now, in Judaism... The person redeeming a man from bondage, what was he called? He was called the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. And according to Jewish law, once the redemptive price had been paid in full, a title deed was drawn up, and on the inside of the scroll was written all the specifications along with the terms of sale, and on the outside contained a summary of the document, and it was sealed. And since he's the one that paid the redemption price for that person or that property, the seals bore his official impression. That meant that he was the only one who had the official right. He was the only one worthy to break the seal and open the scroll, which then brought about the full redemptive process. Now, church, what's the best example of a kinsman redeemer in the Bible? Give me another one. You can see what a true kinsman redeemer is by looking at the, uh, st the story excuse me, of Ruth and Boaz. In case you're not familiar with the story, here is a very condensed version. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Both her husband and two sons die, which leaves Naomi and her two daughters-in-law as widows. Now, there were few things worse in those days than being a widow with no sons. And to be in this position meant loss of income and support, loss of possession, and ultimately loss of property. In short, they were desperate and destitute. The only hope they had was for someone to see their plight and be willing to pay the price of redemption. This would then prevent them from losing everything, right? They were in a desperate situation. What happened next? Enter Boaz. The interesting thing about Boaz was that he was not the first in line to be the redeemer. There was another relative who was in line for this position, but this person wasn't willing to redeem, or he was willing to redeem the property until he realized there was a widow that he would also have to redeem. This he did not want to do, so he gave up his right 
to redeem them. Upon doing this, Boaz was next in line, and he became the kingsman redeemer, ultimately redeeming her property and her name. So with that in mind, church, what is required of a kinsman redeemer? Let's list these qualifications real briefly. Number one, you had to be kin. You've heard that word before. We, use, we say the word next of kin. You had to be kin. The only way that you could be a kinsman redeemer was that you had to be of the same family. There had to be some relational tie, which meant that someone from another family could not bring about the redemption because they were of a different bloodline. They were of a different kind. Number two, you had to, you had to be willing. In the Ruth and Boaz story, the person who was next in line as the redeemer was simply not willing to follow through with the redemption process. If the person was not willing, they could not be forced to do it. Being willing is at the heart of what a kinsman redeemer is all about. And number three, you had to be able to redeem. Willingness alone was not enough to be a kinsman redeemer. You actually had to be able to follow through with the redemption, and if you did not have the financial means to make the redemption happen, then you could not be the redeemer. It did not matter how good your intentions were. And finally, number four, you had to pay the price in full. There was no such thing as a partial redemption when it came to being a kinsman redeemer. Unless the full price was paid, there was no redemption. It was truly an all or nothing proposition. And if you did not fulfill all of that criteria, the contract would not be legal and binding. Church, as you look closer at the story of Ruth and the descriptions of a kinsman redeemer, I hope you can recognize the parallels between her predicament and ours. We were just like Naomi and Ruth, desperate and destitute. We had no hope and we were all lost in our sinful condition. We needed someone who could step in and become our redeemer. And so church, what is our answer to that answer to our condition? Who is our kinsman redeemer? Who has paid the price in full and who is worthy to open up the scroll and complete all the legal requirements? Enter Jesus Christ. Can we just give him some praise and glory in this place? You see, why Jesus is a worthy kinsman redeemer is because, number one, Jesus became like us. Because the Redeemer had to be of like kind, Jesus had to become just like us. If Jesus did not make or take, not take on humanity, there would be no way of redemption for us. Since sin came into the world through one man, it would take another man to bring about salvation and righteousness. This would require the infinite God to take on human flesh. This is what Jesus did. And in the Gospel of John, we see this spelled out very clearly. 
In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? Number two, Jesus was willing to do it. In Philippians chapter 2, we see the willingness of our Lord to become our Redeemer. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice of his own free will, which means that no one twisted his arm. He was willing to be obedient and see the process all the way through to the end. Number three, Jesus was able to redeem. Having the willingness, as we said earlier, means nothing if you did not have the ability to be able to redeem someone. Thankfully for us, this was not the case. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was everything that was needed to bring about our redemption. Amen? Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam, led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ, leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Amen. Amen. And number four, Jesus paid the complete price for our sin. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people. Totally committed to doing good deeds. Church, as I start to close, we've clearly answered the question today of who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seven seals. We may have already known the answer, which we actually did know the answer before we even started this ride. But today it is my prayer that you would really appreciate and understand why the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. Amen? As we reflect on the profound significance of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer, let us be filled with awe and gratitude for what he has accomplished on our behalf. He became like us, willingly took on the form of a servant, had the divine ability to redeem and paid the complete price for our sin. Do you know what that means, church? That means that he has not only redeemed us spiritually, but has secured our future redemption in the body and in the restoration of the earth itself. It is through him we have the hope and assurance of complete redemption. And you know, we can go through the book of Revelation, we just can sort of breathe through these verses, but we don't always understand the significance of them. Because in Revelation chapter 5, when Jesus takes a scroll from the right hand of God, it has the massive implication for all of creation 
that he alone has earned the authority and right to bring about the full restoration of all things, including you and me. Church, let us remember, therefore, that our redemption is not partial but complete because our kinsman redeemer paid the full price. We have been set free from bondage, uh, the bondage of sin and death. And one day we will receive glorified bodies free from the struggle of sin and witness the earth's restoration to its original state free from the curse of sin. As we conclude this message today, and as I ask the worship team to please come up, let us exalt the name of Jesus, our worthy kinsman redeemer, who has done what no one else can do. He has secured our past, present, and future redemption. He has secured our eternity. And you know, church, without him and without this truth, our lives are worthless. But because of him and because of this truth, we have the privilege of knowing that our inheritance is secured until that great day when he returns. And everybody said, what a day that is going to be. Amen? Now, church, after I pray, I want us to sing that song again. And I want us to sing it really understanding that he alone is worthy and also think about why he is worthy. I saw Uncle Bill kneeling at the altar early. If you feel that God is so worthy that you want to kneel where you are or you want to come to the front and kneel while we're singing the song, you're welcome to do so. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, as we come to the close of this message today, we are filled with awe and gratitude for the profound truths we have explored. We thank you for revealing Jesus to us as the worthy kinsman redeemer the lamb who was slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah. We are struck with the significance of the scroll with its seven seals, which represents the title deed to the earth and the unfolding of your divine plan. Lord Jesus, we praise you for becoming like us, for your willingness to take on human form, for your divine ability to redeem, and for paying the complete price for our sin. You alone are worthy to open the scroll and bring about the full restoration of all things. Just lift your voice with me, church. Lift your voices this morning. Lord, we acknowledge that our redemption is not partial but complete because of your sacrifice. As we lift our voices in worship this morning one more time, we exalt your name, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. We declare that you have secured our past, present, and future redemption. You have given us hope, and we eagerly await and anticipate the day of your return when all things will be restored. Lord Jesus, you're worthy. And it's in your precious and holy name that we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.